Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. The economic recovery in the U.S. continues to be uneven and unpredictable. As our listeners know, it's hard to keep track of how much is changing in the world of workforce development between new approaches to credentialing, large funding streams flowing through the public workforce system, and historic shifts in higher education, among other trends. Fortunately, our guest today is in a position to help us tie this all together. Maria Flynn is president and CEO of Jobs for the Future, a national nonprofit driving transformation in the American workforce and education systems. Maria brings decades of experience in government and the nonprofit sector to her role and is a sought-after expert on education and workforce issues. Thanks so much for joining us today, Maria. Hi, Yvonne. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, I'm pretty sure most listeners already know of your organization, Jobs for the Future. I would love if you could give us more details on where you focus JFF's efforts these days. Sure. So Jobs for the Future has been around since 1983, and we are a national nonprofit that works to drive equitable economic advancement. And we do that by designing, scaling, influencing, and investing. So really working across the public and private sector um, at the federal, state, and local level. And we do a mix um, of policy and practice across the education and workforce ecosystem. And as you can imagine, um, we have a lot going on at the moment. I feel our mission has kind of never been more important uh, than it is right now as we as a nation work to recover from from COVID. And so we are really digging into issues of equity, of quality, of career navigation, and how we can be designing solutions across government and corporations and community-based organizations that truly are worker-centered. Well, thank you for doing that important work. You know, uh, like me, you've been involved in workforce issues and education issues for decades. And you know, you push to reshape public systems and institutions, you know, as you say, to be worker focused. I've discovered that many suffer from recidivism and revert back to prior ways because transformation is really hard, especially when it affects the person that's in the mirror. How is this moment in time different or not from what you're seeing in the past? And what are the opportunities these days? I think it's a great question. And you're right. I was thinking about how Vanya and I have been through a number of roles and kind of have looked at these issues from many different vantage points. I hope that we can look back and see that this moment was different. I think more has to happen in order for that to be true. So I think, you know, on a positive side, I think we have um, an environment in DC right now where we are going to see really historic levels of funding flow around the education and workforce issues, which is terrific. I think that there is largely a pretty shared sense of urgency in this moment. Um, I think we have a refreshing and overdue um, understanding of the importance of equity, particularly racial equity kind of in this work. But where I feel we still have work to do, and I feel we need to really have a greater sense of urgency is around 
are the policy conversations, are the conversations being held around workforce or kind of the human infrastructure? Are we really asking the right fundamental questions? And to me, you know, I get concerned when I, I see that we are largely, you know, operating public systems that were designed for a different era and that a lot of the conversations now are about funding, but are not kind of questioning those underlying assumptions of are these systems the systems that we need for today and the future? And my answer to that is largely no, that we really need to be stepping back, asking the harder questions, getting to the root issues um, that are driving a lot of the systemic inequities that we see. And as you said, you know, that does get hard when, you know, folks are looking in the mirror because at the end of the day, um, you know, that brings up issues of, of power and privilege and who's making decisions and who is allocating resources and so forth. And I think that's where these conversations, I, I think, still today um, fall short, because I think if we were to ask really hard questions about, you know, uh, for example, do we think that workforce boards are the right governance mechanism for workforce funds in the country, right? You're immediately going to have five or 600 workforce board leaders who, you know, aren't too excited to have that conversation. But if we're really looking to see how can we truly be putting workers at the center of these systems, and those are the conversations that have to be had. You bring up great points as who benefits now, and it's very difficult to change the shape and the flow of money because those that benefit now don't really embrace any shifts in those fundings. But let, let me ask the question from a different vantage point. If, if Maria Flynn were designing those policy conversations and shaping those fundamental questions, what is the world that you would like us to move towards? Uh, so the world I would like us to move towards is, um, and I think this requires really a a major kind of stepping back and almost a blue sky redesign conversation that needs to happen, where if we were to remove all of the current assumptions of how funding flows, of how, um, you know, committee jurisdiction in Congress, you know, determines a lot of these things, if we were to really, for a moment, suspend those <laughs> realities and say, you know, if we were to design from scratch a you know, a lifelong learning system, an equitable one um, for the United States, where would we start? You know, how would money flow? Who would make those decisions? How would we be providing the information in robust and actionable ways to individuals and organizations to help them design, you know, their best uh, career paths? How would we really kind of rethink the connections between you know, what is traditional higher ed, traditional workforce, you know, even, you know, some of the work JFF has been doing recently about rethinking kind of, you know, grades 11 and 12 in high school. Like, how do you really think about what is needed to prepare folks for good careers? And I think that really starts to um, ask extremely hard questions. So I think another piece is how do we really have a thoughtful conversation about what the best role is for the public sector, for the private sector, particularly in talent development, and think about, you know, how do we design around that? You know, this concept of lifelong learning 
in the past has been about, hey, uh, can I study foreign languages so I can go on vacation? Now it's actually infiltrated into the public policy discussions because we know that education and training can't be just sort of the thing that you do at the beginning of your career, beginning of life. Uh, you have to skill up, reskill continuously to stay relevant. And because technology is just having that type of uh, effect on our skill sets. You talked about the public sector, the role of public sector, the role of the private sector, but there's also the role of the individual. And fundamentally, it comes down to like who pays, who funds all of these training endeavors so that workers can have the skill to stay relevant in the market. And I wonder if you have any insights into how we should think about that, because it's clearly at the beginning of your life, the public policies are set up so that there's financial aid and the public system pays for your education. But there's some assumptions about who pays beyond that. And what, what is your thinking at, at this current date? Yeah, I think the question of who pays is a is a critical one. And I feel right now there are some important conversations happening. I'm worried that those conversations are not kind of strategically connected. So kind of to parse that a little bit, for example, so, you know, lots of conversation around uh, free college, right? And, you know, at this moment here, middle of September, looking like free community college is something that we might see come out of the reconciliation bill, right? So that seems to be one big strand of kind of policy conversation that's happening. But then in a kind of a parallel track, right, conversations around should Pell eligibility be extended to short-term credentials? And that's an idea that um, us at JFF are very supportive of, um, understanding that, you know, it's imperative to have strong quality indicators as, as part of that. But we believe that you know, short-term credentials, industry-recognized credentials are a critical piece of this system, um, and that individuals should be able to access Pell Grants to to attain those. So that's kind of like strand two. I would say strand three then is, you know, the dollars that flow through the traditional workforce or WIOA system, which, you know, I would argue are pretty hard to get to, um, right? It's a very cumbersome bureaucratic system a lot of hoops and complexities that both an individual and a provider need to go through in order to access those dollars. And so number four, we have exciting, I think, progress being made on the corporate side, where just in the past few months, we've seen Walmart, Target, and now Amazon all saying that they are going to pay for college degrees for their employees, right, which is fantastic. And, you know, and also I think raises lots of important questions. Uh, and then I think the last one I would say is that at JFF, we have a Financing the Future initiative where we are really digging into what are some of the kind of innovative financing models that really can help facilitate lifelong learning, such as income share agreements, uh, which I know sometimes have a lot of uh, you know questions and some controversies surrounding them but we feel that you know if done correctly some of these new approaches really can help drive greater equity and outcomes because we'll be making financing more easily available uh, to more workers so and i think where i see an opportunity for enhancement is for there to be a more comprehensive 
debate around these strands together. And I think right now we see lots of kind of siloed conversations, but not enough kind of stepping back and saying, you know, what's the, what is the end game we're striving for here in terms of opening up sources of capital to finance lifelong learning? And how do we make those options easier for individuals to understand and navigate? I'm looking forward to um, this whole strand of work by JFF. Thanks for your leadership in this area. So I agree with you, right? The individual has a key role to play in all of this, but I think we make it, we as a country, make it hard for individuals to make good, informed decisions in these areas. So you spent many years at the U.S. Department of Labor and understanding the dynamics in D.C. Are there any systems-level transformations you're seeing that are particularly exciting? programmatically? Sure. One thing I'm very excited about at the moment is the funding opportunity that has come out of the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, the Build Back Better funding that are really driving funds to regional economies. And I flag that because I, one of my like strongest passions is around kind of the role that regional economies play in driving economic advancement. And it ties back to some work that I did at the U.S. Department of Labor back um, during the Bush administration with an initiative called WIRED, which stood for Workforce Innovation and Regional Economic Development. And what I like about the commerce opportunity, um, and I know those awards are will be made in a few months, but I feel that it really goes back and takes like some of those ideas from WIRED, um, I think modernizes them a bit and really tethers them to this moment of economic recovery and the importance of really looking at the connection between economic development and workforce development, which I know is something that you've looked at a lot in your career as well. So early days on that, because I know the solicitation is just um, on the street now, but I'm looking forward to see how that initiative rolls out because it's that type of focus that I think we need more of. I like that it came out of the Department of Commerce uh, rather than within the silos of you know, maybe the workforce institutions or the education institutions, uh, because no one institution has all the resources and the competencies to be able to solve the economic development issues of the region. And it's collectively as a portfolio, you have a better chance to do that. When you say it modernizes, what element is being modernized? When I read the solicitation, I thought it was interesting. So I think there were, you know, things that you could you could see some elements of Wired in there. I also think they've looked at more recent work that uh, the National Fund for Workforce Solutions and other organizations have done around the concept of you know, industry partnerships. So I think there's some of those structural elements in there as well. I think a more enhanced and nuanced understanding of the different roles that organizations, particularly like anchor or intermediary organizations, play at that regional level. So yeah, I'm kind of a geek when it comes to that stuff. So I I um I was telling someone at the Department of Commerce how much I enjoyed like reading through all the details because I think it's really well designed. So I'm excited to see how it rolls out. That's wonderful. Now, I remember JFF uh, having a role in actually coaching some of the public institutions uh, when I was still at the California Community Colleges. 
what are the JFF strategies to help public institutions sustain the changes that they desire? So we really approach our work through this lens of dual transformation, which really um, talks about one side of that being, as you're saying, like work with the traditional systems and institutions and helping them transform and advance. And the second half of the dual transformation is actively engaging kind of the the newcomers or the innovators or the kind of non-traditional models um, and kind of meeting them where they are and then working to bring, you know, really the best of those worlds together. So we really see ourselves as a bridge between kind of the two sides of, the, of that coin. And so the work that we do with the traditional systems, um, we work very closely with uh, community college systems, as you, as you know, with workforce boards, with uh, community-based organizations, uh, also increasingly with uh, corporations through our corporate action platform. And I would say we, a um, couple of the strategies we deploy, so one is activating networks for them so they can learn from each other. So networks of states, or uh, we also run something called the Community College Workforce Consortium, where we bring together uh, community college presidents who are particularly passionate and committed to workforce development strategies in their institutions. So we do a lot of convening. Uh, we also do a great deal of capacity building technical assistance work and kind of, you know, behind the scenes support work to leadership teams as they're moving their transformation uh, agenda forward. And then also bringing to the table, you know, opportunities to test out new designs, new models, new technologies along the way. So because we're not a membership organization, you know, we don't have a a membership that we're beholden to or anything like that. So we have the ability to be bolder, I think, in our approach and really encourage, whether it's systems or um, institutions, to really take the big swings to really move towards more equitable impact. Maria, you created the JFF Labs within Jobs of the Future in 2018 to bridge traditional education and workforce systems. I think this is what you you mentioned in terms of uh, newcomers. Um, what have you learned so far and what will you do more of or less of? Yes, yeah, so thanks for asking. Yes, yeah, so we are a little over three years uh, into JFF Labs. Uh, we have a wonderful executive director, Christina Francis, who joined us just about a year ago, who's leading that team forward. And a way to think about it is we have a number of core functions for labs, uh, and they include impact investing. So we have an early stage investment fund uh, that sits in labs, ETF at JFF Labs. We also have a data services team there. Uh, one of the projects that they're working on right now is Outcomes for Opportunity, which is focusing on helping a set of workforce boards really look deeper at their data and their, and their outcomes. And then we also focus on incubation and acceleration services for mission-aligned startups. So startups that are really aligned with our mission and that are focusing really at that intersection of education and workforce. Um, some of the early products that have come out of that work are market scans uh, that are looking at, you know, who are the innovators to watch around career navigation, around assessment technologies, um, around kind of technologies that enable young people to thrive in the workplace. And so I 
want to call those out in particular because I think they do a really interesting job of showcasing some of the most innovative uh, companies and entrepreneurs that are in those spaces. And then the other function of JFF Labs is to really serve as a greenhouse, so to speak, where new bodies of work for JFF can really start to take root. So we kind of plant something in labs and then we will move it into JFF once it uh, is matured. And so our first example of that is our corporate facing work, uh, which is led by Cat Ward, which we launched in labs about three years ago and we'll probably be moving over into JFF in the coming year. Uh, but we found that it's a I think a very valuable way to give entrepreneurs, so to speak, some room and some space to really try out new things and to grow new bodies of work. And are these entrepreneurs with uh, who are employees within JFF or are they entrepreneurs from the outside? So we do both. So Kat is a JFF employee. Um, Michael Collins is another JFF leader who is building out uh, some work around racial economic equity within labs. So he's doing that now. We also have external entrepreneurs and residents who kind of take tours through labs. Uh, one example from the past year is Alex Hernandez, who is a dean at the University of Virginia, um, did a tour, as did Shelley Bell, who is the CEO of Black Girl Ventures. So we do a mix of both. What a great intentional structure to allow the organization to learn from within. Yes, and I think too often organizations forget, you know, like that as we are trying to help the field evolve and transform that our organizations ourselves also need to evolve and transform. And so, you know, we really see this as an opportunity for, you know, the organization to be on a learning journey and journey of transformation at the same time that we're trying to help the ecosystem do that hard work as well. Well, I hope our, our listeners are taking away a lesson. If you want to facilitate agility, you actually have to build in the structure so that employees and staff and your whatever your, your network yes. is can actually experiment and take on risks uh, more easily, right? Exactly. We found, I think, that JFF, like many nonprofits, right, had become a very risk-averse organization. And so we have been finding ways to encourage more thoughtful risk-taking and more innovation, you know, at the same time that we are delivering, you know, our deliverables and our, our projects that we're um, hired to take on. So it's a need to, as you said, be intentional about how you design for all of that. Absolutely. Well, employers are really in a tough spot right now with 10 million open jobs. What's your take on how employers are trying to meet this challenge? And what advice can you offer to those attempting to find solutions? I really appreciated um, an op-ed that David Alter from MIT had in the New York Times, uh, where he was really reflecting on this unique labor market moment that we're in. And the fact that I don't think anyone quite understands exactly what's happening at this moment with the extreme labor shortages that some industries and occupations are are feeling at the moment. The good news, I think, around that is that the tightness of the labor market is causing employers to be more innovative and be more creative about how they're thinking about their talent pools and how they do their sourcing and recruiting. So I think 
now is the moment to really push on that lever and to really see, you know, how can JFF and others really help employers, you know, lean into this moment and lean into more equitable ways of bringing on talent and not only, you know, the recruitment process, but also the career advancement strategies that they deploy internally. So I think there are, the good news is we, there are a lot of good models to learn from. Through our corporate action platform, we document um, a lot of those. We have a Recover Stronger playbook that we released in June that really codifies a lot of the strong employer practices that we have seen deployed since uh, the onset of COVID. So I encourage folks to to take a look at that. And I think, you know, that said, there's still a long ways to go, right? I think we need to still be looking at this issue of ensuring that companies who are making bold statements around DEI really take the action that's needed to live up to those statements, right? So I think we that's something to you don't want to take the foot off the pedal on on ensuring that that happens. Um, we also need to, I think, make it easier for those commitments to be, you know, acted upon. So, for example, I was talking to an employer uh, the other day who was saying that, um, you know, the good news is that they felt very, very strongly that they wanted to remove the degree requirements from a lot of their jobs. The downside was they were having a hard time finding an efficient way then to sort through the applicants, right? So it's like they wanted to do the right thing. They were finding it very challenging to do the right thing, right? So how do we make it easier for employers to do the right thing. And I think that there are a lot of organizations like Byron, Augusted Opportunity at Work, right, who have some very practical platforms and tools that can can help. But it's getting these actions happening at scale where I think we still have some opportunity to do a lot more. I remember when I was back in corporate, one of the HR folks were complaining that they couldn't get diversity into their pipeline. And when I asked what they were doing, they, they said, well, they would post the job listing, but then they would close it within the hour because there were too many candidates that would come in and they didn't have the bandwidth. They didn't have HR people to be able to sort through. And it's really just interesting, the sort of the circular issues that are brought about. But I am glad you're pushing employers to think about you know, their DEI commitment Talking about playbook, I just came out with my first book on Amazon called Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times, which I don't know if you know, Maria, you and JFF are mentioned quite a few times in, across the chapter. Oh, so, awesome. Yes. So you have to take a, a, a look. <laughs> uh, some are surprised to see me acknowledge in Chapter 10 that the playbook for resiliency for the workers in the next economy is not just solely about training. We just can't train our way out of this economy. And that we're growing a lot of jobs that don't come with any assets like healthcare and retirements. So therefore, we're still leaving the community unstable. Um, Some believe the solution is universal basic income, but others have different ideas. What human infrastructures do you think we need to build so that workers can thrive in this next economy? So I agree with you that training is not the silver bullet here. I think it's an important 
ingredient in the recipe, but not the only one. And at JFF, we have been, you know, similarly talking about, you know, skills and, or like skills plus. And I think it's another example of where the broader debate or dialogue isn't quite focused on the right thing, right? So I, again, I think it's an example of where we have, we tend to have very fragmented policy dialogues where I think there are, you know, folks who are looking at the portable benefit issues or there are folks who are looking at universal basic income issues, but they tend to be kind of isolated from the folks who are advocating for more workforce funding. And so how can we start to drive a more comprehensive dialogue and policy agenda that can really bring in all of these key strands? Because I agree, I think the fact that jobs are fundamentally shifting in nature, that how folks navigate them, understand those changes, understand what skills or degrees they need or don't need uh, as part of that. All of that is very opaque right now. I also have felt recently that one shift I have found like in these 18 months uh, that we've been uh, navigating COVID is that some of those previous future of work discussions have kind of gotten sidelined, right? Because I feel that we went through an initial moment uh, when everyone was switching to virtual uh, training and service delivery that people are like, oh, look, the future of work has arrived, right? And then I feel we have kind of moved on from there. And I think it is time to resurface and re-elevate the fact that um, automation has not slowed down, you know, in these 18 months and said it has picked up, um, that the future of different occupations and industries are still very much in flux and we need to continue to position our institutions and our systems to be agile and nimble enough to be ready for that future and because i think we are rightly so in many cases focused on you know this near-term recovery that we are losing sight of the bigger issues that are soon coming our way. So I like that you're kind of calling for this more, you know, robust like approach that can be pulling in these different resources because I I would agree that, you know, training is key but not it. And it's also hard for public policies to mimic or to magnify a solution unless we actually have the solutions tested and modeled, right? So that this calls for yeah. also a moment of experimentation to design what is worker-friendly. Exactly, yeah. And so one of the other ideas that we have been advocating for is this idea of an ARPA-L or a DARPA for labor, because I think it's just as you're saying, I don't feel that as a country we invest enough in the truly innovative ideas that could be really spurring worker advancement. And so, again, it really requires you know Congress and the Labor Department to uh, almost have a dual transformation of their own, right? Be be getting today's systems you know in the place that they need to be to 
push us towards an equitable economic recovery, but also investing in the new ideas, the bold innovations, the technology solutions that can be bringing um, new ways of approaching some of these, you know, historic issues that have been, you know, very hard to address. So I think, I don't think it's an either or, I think it's a both. Um, and so hopefully we will get to that point. Well, let's wrap up by imagining the 10-year future, or maybe it might take 20. Uh, so let's say DARPA-L has gone into effect. What is your hope for that future that is different from today? So I, I think of this a lot because I have um, two girls, and they are nine years apart. So my oldest daughter is a senior in high school and is uh, embarking on a pretty, like, traditional, you know, path of looking at colleges and so forth. And I often think when my little one, who is in third grade now, you know, when she's in 12th grade, will this system look different? And I sure hope the answer is yes. <laughs> so I think um, it's going to require a lot, but I think one big category is around information and navigation. So having much more transparent data on pathways, on programs, on occupations that can be easily accessible to students, to parents, to workers, right? So things that we just don't have now. Um, I think for the demand side to have shifted beyond, you know, the four-year degree as the, you know, default requirement and really having a more agile and fluid way of recognizing skills and experiences, right? But I think you need the demand side to to shift significantly enough so that the post-secondary education system can shift along with it. And then I do think that, you know, technology is going to play an incredible role now and in the future in ways that we probably can't even envision yet. But if we really start looking at the power of blockchain and what does that mean for skill portability and things like that, then, um, the sky's the limit in a lot of ways, but I think that the pandemic has pushed us faster into the future, but that we still need a lot of systemic changes to be happening um, in order for there to be a real like significant shift to a different way of thinking and, and being in this space. And that's why we're so glad that you continue to be at the helm of JFF, Maria. Thank you very much for being with us today and lending your insights into these really complicated set of questions. Thank you so much, Vaughn. It was great to talk with you, and I look forward to digging into your book. I'm Vaughn Tone Quinlivan with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Thank you.